wolves will devour you. Lost and found. El Khaga, Western Desert, Egypt, 25th of February, 1926. Dear John, it was wonderful to receive your letter from the desert. How many deserts does this country have? Although containing such alarming news about the chase by the Brotherhood and the betrayal by Clark, and you being a wanted man? I am so glad I never approached Clark myself for guidance. I, too, have much to report, and I am leaving this letter care of the El Carga Hotel reception, for want of any better option. Tomorrow, our camel train, supported by some little motorised half-track vehicles, which will carry our heavy loads and water tanks, sets off for the hungry tomb. From what Rookfield and I discovered last night, I think we are now safe from an evil animus that we did not even know has been overshadowing us and indeed the entire expedition. John, please don't be disheartened reading this. I am nervous, terribly so, but I refuse to let my fears overwhelm my rational thoughts and, uh, and if you got my last letter, you will know that I, somewhat foolishly in hindsight, decided to leave the hotel last night for dinner in a desert pavilion with Malcolm and Mabel Whitten. It should have been strange to me that I agreed to go, given that the day had already been full of tiring journeying, and the hotel, while Spartan, was at least a solid structure with ovens and a cook, and that Dr Rookfield, and possibly Irina too, would be my dining companions. But at the time, all I could think about was that I was going to ride a camel on my own for the first time and that it would be wonderful to dine with the Wittens. It was difficult to know how to dress without any riding gear and I was glad I now owned a pair of harem pants, which I matched with a fresh white blouse and a baby blue pullover I had from the sea voyage, as I'd heard it gets cold in the desert at night. Mounting Camellia, as I've named my camel, was a bizarre experience. The camel kneels down from the front and you climb on in that position whereupon she upends herself and you are spirited aloft on her back, hoping not to tip over her nose if she is at all uneven in her movements. I felt very excited as I set off on Camellia in a vaguely northward direction. The last embers of the setting sun were low over my left shoulder and the intense orange, reds and purplish shades of the desert sunset mingled with the clear turquoise and deep ultramarines of the night sky ahead and to my right. Once my eyes were used to it, it was exhilarating how well I could see in the half-light, although it did not dispel a slight nagging sense of unease which I could not pin down. It was not difficult to see the direction of the pavilion, as there were many dents and ruts in the sand, 
as though large items had been dragged along by the half-tracks. The trace is not yet obliterated by the wind-blown sand. While I thought I was totally alone, I could hear a dim singing in my ears, a persistent thrum that would not stop, and I wondered if it was an effect of the wind or something else. I tried to convince myself it was not real, when all of a sudden it was interrupted by a distant, then closer sound of pounding hoof prints. Elizabeth! I had scarcely time to be alarmed before Dr. Rookfield came galloping up beside me on another camel, and I have to admit looking rather dashing, like Lawrence of Arabia in dark blue tasseled scarves flying out behind him and bandanas tied tightly around his felt frame. He overtook me and swerved into my path, forcing Camellia to such a sudden halt that I nearly went over her head. Elizabeth, he gasped, thank all the gods I've caught you in time. What's the matter, Hugh? I asked him. Didn't you get my note? Of course I did. Malcolm had invited me to dinner as well, but I'd already declined. It seemed a bit extreme for him to get himself a camel and come out into the desert at twilight just because I'd declined our dinner arrangement. Maybe he was jealous that I had accepted the invitation and he had not. I was unsure what to make of it, but he continued, Malcolm and Mabel are not what they seem. You are in great danger, Elizabeth. Going to dinner with them would be like signing an execution order. I was about to challenge this exaggeration, but it was taking all my efforts to restrain Camellia, who vocally resented this interruption to her gallop, and I was left temporarily at a loss for words. I remembered the words in your telegram, John. You are in danger. And how someone had tried to harm Mabel with a spiked drink on the boat. Had it been Rookfield? I had only his word that he had arrived separately to Luxor, and I had only seen the poisoner's hand, and a gloved one at that. I said nothing, feeling for the first time afraid of this agitated man, and let him continue. I've checked my sources, and the real Mabel Whitten died in an accident five years ago. In her place is, what, a ghost? Something worse? God knows, Elizabeth, but you said yourself that it was after tea with Mabel when Irina started acting so strangely. You can't meet this woman on your own until we know what is going on, what she is. Before I could protest these bizarre allegations against Mabel, I must have let loose my grip on Camellia's halter, for she suddenly swung past Rookfield's camel and shot off along the path we were headed presumably towards the Whitten Pavilion. Rookfield had no choice but to follow. But Camellia had the bit between her teeth, and with Rookfield having lost the element of surprise, there was no stopping her. We continued along the rutted track until we could see some canvas tents in the distance, gleaming whitely in the dusk. One was larger than the others, and I could only assume this was the Whitten Pavilion. Finally, Camellia ran out of steam, and I was able to bring her to a halt. With a huff, she sat down with that peculiar seesaw motion of camels, and I half fell, half slid off her back, but gripped her tightly by the reins. 
Brookfield urged his camel down and dismounted too. We looked about us. There seemed to be no one about, but someone had assembled this tent village, so I doubted it would stay that way for long. Here, said Brookfield under his breath, hustling us over to a hitching post, onto which we were able to tether both camels. From within his robed attire, he pulled out a letter written to him at Luxor from, I shuddered to see the letterhead, someone at the Society of Esoterica in London. I recalled his connection with that place, and Roland too. It occurred to me to call for help from the Wittens, but at the last moment I remembered the debt we owe Hugh Rookfield for his assistance with you and George and Lily, and stayed silent. Skip all this, he said gruffly, pulling away the first page or so. This is the key bit. He struck a metal lighter, from which flickering light I was able to read a dreadful story about Mabel being the life and soul of the party until she was drowned in a tragic boating accident five years ago. Apparently, Rookfield had known her in those days, but he says he had completely forgotten. They say age will do that to you. But he is not that much older than you or I, John. The wind blew a sudden last gust, nearly taking the pages from me, and Rookfield's lighter guttered and went out. In the sudden darkness, I was very confused. In my head, I heard the reproach from none other than the veiled lady. Foolish girl! It was true about Irina's odd behaviour, and I remembered how Sir M did all he could to avoid his wife or to put her down in public. I realised what should have made me slightly uneasy about the evening invitation, the cosy togetherness of the hosts, Malcolm and Mabel. Normally Sir M looked at his wife like he detested her. Had he somehow known there was something wrong about her, but been unable to act? So how... I began, but Rookfield put his fingers to his lips and pulled me to the back of a nearby tent into deep shadow. There was the sound of scrunching feet in the area near the larger tent and a brief dialogue in Arabic. I fancied one of the voices was Sir Malcolm himself. We paused and the voices moved off. It was not silent, for I was still aware of the irritating singing in my ears even though the desert wind had dropped with the dusk. Rookfield was snaking his way behind the tents, three or four small ones, and then to a larger one, which I realised backed on to the Witten Pavilion, and was presumably the Witten's private quarters. I followed. This last tent was lit from within by a lantern, and the entrance flap was slightly undone. I would not dream of walking straight in, but Rookfield somehow managed to ascertain the coast was clear and beckoned me in behind him. I looked around nervously. At first glance, it was the dressing room of a standard well-equipped expedition. I could see Sir Malcolm's tropical jacket and sun helmet, boots and a gun. There was a writing desk with papers piled under a glass paperweight. In another corner was a large travel trunk, upended to act as a wardrobe. Some of Mabel's clothes lay draped about. 
It seemed very normal, and Rookfield started rooting through the paperwork. I stood there confused and conflicted. My head hurt as the singing got more insistent, and I really thought I should call for help. But also, I could sense tug from the veiled lady, guiding me to one of the camp chairs. I knew we had to make good our escape from this place, and I had felt my white blouse was quite conspicuous in the darkness outside. So I made to take a dark shawl of Mabel's from that chair to act as camouflage for later on. As I picked it up, the delicate woolen stitches disintegrated before my eyes, and I was left with a bare husk of a garment, a few old tattered shreds of something that had once long, long ago been fabric. An earthy, mouldering smell came off it, almost choking me. I dropped it as though it was on fire. And then I saw what it had been concealing. On the chair seat, underneath the erstwhile shawl, was stood a half dozen or more figurines, mostly very crudely executed in rough red clay. Apart, that is, from the one that took centre stage, the one of me, the one in wax that Irina had created and that I had modelled for on the RMS Nereid as we crossed the Mediterranean. How long ago it now seems! As I got my eye in, I realised even the crude figures represented individuals on our team. One wore a scrap of white cloth embroidered with roundels taken from the very same blouse Irina had worn on our first meeting. Hadn't she ripped it that day in the bazaar? Two male figures in khaki presenting cigarettes like arms stood side by side. Jeremy and Trevor, perhaps? Or Artie? Oh, please God, not Artie. I had to suppress a snigger when I saw a female figure in a red-stained scrap of cream chiffon. Haley would almost certainly have thrown that dress to the cleaners. But the thought that Mabel had gone to the effort of generating and collecting clay figures and fragments of clothing or other possessions from our expedition team so shocked and appalled me that I stood aghast, frozen to the spot, and yet fascinated. Behind the chair there were more crude, unfinished figures. Was this work not yet done? The nasty little figures seemed to waver and move in the fluttering light, and I had a sudden horror of them coming to life like your shadow puppet and attacking us. Speechless, I tugged at Brookfield's arm and silently pointed. Deep in the papers, he looked slightly annoyed at the interruption, but followed my gaze and gave a jolt of surprise when his eyes took in what I was showing him. Of all the... he expostulated, bending down and retrieving one of the clumsy, unfinished clay shapes, which was sporting a red paisley handkerchief around what might become its neck. I'd been looking for that everywhere, he muttered, then added, Good God, but this is strong magic, Elizabeth. It certainly explains a lot. These must be destroyed. Hold tight, Elizabeth. Yours first, he whispered, when there was a noise outside, a light step, and a woman's voice saying something indistinct. Quick! hissed Brookfield, 
and bundled us both into the upstanding trunk, pulling the door to behind us. Fortunately, it was one of those trunks that are open inside, not partitioned. So there was room, but barely, for us both to stand in a half-crouch, muffled by the clothing within and scarcely able to breathe. The woman, it had to be Mabel, but what is she? Seemed to be suspicious and searching for something, and I prayed it wasn't something to wear from the trunk. Or worse, the shawl and its hidden hoard. I had an overwhelming urge to shout, Here I am! And I think I would have if I had not seen those ghastly figurines. Even so, it was all I could do not to let any sound pass my pursed lips. I could feel Rookfield's breath hot on my neck, and I squeezed myself against him for steadiness. It certainly didn't feel respectable, but I was beyond that at this time. At first it sounded like a woman's step in the room, but the more I listened, the more it seemed like some dread creature shuffling around the tent, muttering and snuffling. Animalistic noises almost, certainly incoherent. Even in the trunk, there was an overwhelming smell of old decay and mould. I couldn't help thinking what Mabel would do when she found us. Or are we cursed already? <coughs> then the creature was suddenly outside the trunk, sniffing distrustfully with rasping breaths, its stink competing with the strong camphor odour within the trunk. I had a desperate, fatal urge to leap out of the trunk and embrace the thing. My head felt like it would explode with the pressure. Or am I no longer cursed? I found myself seeking the guidance of the veiled lady, saying, You have done a great magic. And in my eyes, I pictured myself on the hill at Clatbury in that cold December dawn. <laughs> Dimples was waiting patiently for me then, and I had the curious thought that she and Camellia might get to know one another. I don't think I have the stamina for too much esoterica, so I had to will myself to think of great magic rather than quadruped tea parties. Brookfield and the clothes all the while squashed tightly against me, generating a pungent mix of sweat and mothballs, which I tried hard not to inhale. Finally, the creature moved away with a curse in a completely unfamiliar but probably archaic tongue and the sound of furniture being overturned, the occupant left the tent, a gust of new air flapping the papers. Rookfield and I both breathed a sigh of relief and let the trunk inch open of its own accord. There was a lingering smell of decay and something else, a faint complex aroma of vanilla, cloves and possibly bitumen. Rookfield went straight over to the chair and without further ado picked up Irina's sculpture of me and tried to smash it against the metal arm of the chair. Being made of wax, it did not shatter, but instead distorted into an amorphous blob. I felt a searing pain in my head, in my guts, in my legs, and I sank down onto the ground. 
But the singing in my ears was suddenly gone, and I felt suddenly alert, clear-headed, more so than I've been for weeks. I looked at the statue. It was in pieces, just waxen lumps. Let's go, he said, violently smashing his own figure and taking a sheaf of papers. Get your camel and I'll follow. It was harder than before, now my eyes had become used to the light, but I kept the veiled lady and the great magic in my vision, as well as the thought of Camellia and Dimples, perhaps having a little race over the Wiltshire Downs. And finally I made it to the hitching post at the outskirts of the encampment. Brookfield came running up behind me, and I could see that the tent we had so recently vacated was aflame. We both mounted in haste and rode off. I knocked over the lantern, said Brookfield. It'll look like an accident, but we've no time to waste. It would be good to get back to that poor excuse for a hotel and the goat Tajine before anyone spots we've gone. I thought this was a tall order, but we did, miraculously, seem to get away undetected, while the camp guards concerned themselves with extinguishing the fire. It felt like no time we were back in El Chaga and our camels handed over to their herds. Sitting in the hotel dining room, there was still time for the dregs of the goat curry and Irina, lighting a cigarette and seeming very much her old self. If this is a Nubian town, as they tell me, she said languidly, give me Esbekia any night. Rookfield smiled ambiguously and said as an aside to me, glad I added some lighter fuel to the mix in that tent and uh, some hexes of my own making to ensure all that malicious arcana is eradicated for good. Surely those figures were Caribbean magic rather than Egyptian, I asked, as perhaps surprisingly this had been bothering me. Rookfield answered, The ancient Egyptian magicians used figurines to curse and put spells on their victims too. These sort of ideas repeat through cultures. At the end of the day, Elizabeth, the esoteric and the divine are seen from our own limited human perspective. When we touch the divine, we leave our fingerprints behind and over time shape it into the gods living and dead. They are as mutable as our desires. He raised his eyebrows. Ah, I'll bet you didn't know that the Christian god once had a divine wife. There's actually a convent in England where the sisters of Asherah still secretly worship her. This discourse was all too complex so late after the evening's adventure, and I attempted to excuse myself to go to bed, but Rookfield pulled out the sheaf of papers he had taken from the tent and proffered them to me. You have some homework to do before we set off for the hungry tomb. Your sharp eyes will make short work of that, he said. So, after dinner, here I am in my room, and I believe Rookfield and Irina may be having a late evening stroll together, while I work by candlelight to decipher what looks like some old diaries of Sir Malcolm Witten's. February, February the 10th, 10th 1922. 1922. Ages ago. I talked, I talked to a man to today, a man today who told me 
my grief was unnecessary, that the gods can give back that which is lost. I have a new purpose. I will succeed in this as I have succeeded in everything else. May the 16th, 1924. The, the Brotherhood, Brotherhood of the Veil have revealed more than they intended. I am convinced I now know where the hungry tomb is located. I just need to come up with the grounds for an excavation license and we can start. Soon, Mabel, soon. October, October the 31st, 1925. Gosh, that was only last autumn when you went to Waterford, John. An, An auspicious day for the start of the dig. The men have staked out the site and commenced our initial explorations. The ground is flat and easy and guarded by a cliff to the west. November the 20th, 1925. We have dug up most of the damn valley to no avail. We dig on. I will not be thwarted in this. December the 14th, 1925. I was jolted out of my sleep by the very ground shaking, followed by a roaring noise and the shouting of the men. The earthquake is a sign, but of what? I admit I am in despair and thinking of calling it quits on this blasted enterprise. December the 15th, 1925. We have found it. One of the men came into camp today shouting excitedly. Yesterday's earthquake has caused the face of the cliff to collapse south of our camp. And there, in the fresh rock, is a single shadowy square cut hole high up. January the 3rd, 1926. We are finally going to enter the tomb itself today, though the passageway is partially rubble filled. I believe the structure is now stable. The men have done a good job shoring it up. January the 5th, 1926. I have it, I have it. We finally reached an antechamber with various treasures undisturbed through the ages. I believe there is likely a sarcophagus hidden beyond in another room, but I had eyes only for the papyrus scrolls stacked carelessly. And after a quick search through them, the edges crumbling in my hands, I found it, Mabel. Soon, soon I will have you back. I am closing up the dig for the season and heading back to Cairo, where I shall perform the ritual in more fitting environments. There it ends. It was only a week or so after that when I met Sir Malcolm for the first time. How was I to know what a hornet's nest I'd wandered into? I do now realise I, and so many of us, were under some kind of spell invoked by that dreary old hag. How many of the decisions I have made since I met the Wittons have been influenced by her, and what sort of puppet might I have become if Rookfield had not stopped me tonight? And it was Rookfield who recommended Sir Malcolm to us, John. I am tired now and will go to bed. The thought of the desert march to the hungry tomb, alongside whatever Mabel really is, fills me with apprehension. But it is the final piece of this puzzle, and I know I must follow it. If I leave now, I will have no answers. What she is after that is worth others killing for. Having the diaries will help us know what to look for. 
the thought does occur to me that how can I know for sure, even now, that my decision to go into the desert is my own? I do wish you were here, John. And I do hope for no more earthquakes. With my fondest love, Elizabeth. enjoyed what you've just listened to, please subscribe, review or share to help us flourish.